Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Good morning, church. Uh, Happy Super Bowl Sunday. I know uh, we have a few folks from Kansas City. Is anyone, anyone else from Kansas City? You are? Okay. Are you also a Chiefs fan? Okay, okay, okay. Are anyone from Philadelphia? Boo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Okay, good. I'm glad we're all on the same page here. Um, I, I do want to start. Jamie was like, I asked Jamie this morning, I was like, should I wear my jersey? And she was like, no. Yeah, yeah, I know you said. She said, no, the Bears are not in the Super Bowl. Um, so then I did, and she's like, why did you ask me? But... I was like, the Bears will be in the Super Bowl <laughs> in the next three years, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, we'll go two years because it's Justin Fields' rookie contract. Anyways, um, I, uh, like Tiana said, the Super Bowl doesn't start till 5.30. And since we're having the party, she said I have till 5 to <laughs> preach. So, yeah, she did say that. So, uh, I'll have you out of here by 5. Um, no, I am super thankful uh, to be preaching this morning. Um, I missed you guys last week. I was actually preaching at Missio de Wrigleyville uh, last week. Yeah, one of our other lo- Missio de uh, locations. They did not laugh at my jokes as much. So I don't know if they're just a harder crowd or if you guys just pity me more. Um, but I, do, I did miss you all last week. Um, and a real quick update. Sorry, I won't talk much about myself. Well, I guess I am. But um, this might be the wrong slides. We'll see. Um, or maybe I just included this slide by accident. Uh, people were asking about Alex and his wrists. If you didn't hear, our son broke both wrists. Um, he got his temporary casts off, which were up to his fingertips. Uh, and he has pretty typical casts on now. So praise the Lord. We do not have to do anything that we didn't want to do. Um, so he, he's doing great. He's in really high spirits. Um, yeah, he'll have those on for another two weeks, three weeks. Yeah, so we're good. Um, with that... Let's go ahead and uh, jump into my passage. Um, before I do, I actually, I wanted to pull back the curtain a little bit uh, in my sort of like sermon writing process, if that's okay with you guys. Um, if it's not, just cover yours for a minute. Um, I, I struggled pretty mightily this morning um, to sort of come up. So I had, I like did all the work throughout the week to like understand the passage, sort of understand the content and, and where Paul was going in terms of this. So I, re- I write the part of my sermon that has to do with the text, and then I was just like, I don't know how to intro this passage. I, re- I really didn't know like what to do. And I think part of the reason is, um, you might be able to hear it this morning, but I, I have been pretty sick this week, so maybe my brain power just wasn't working uh, as much. Um, but I think the main reason was um, I will be preaching another sermon um, on sort of like how not to lose heart in the midst of pain. Um, and I have maybe preached, I, I think like maybe three or four times in the last two months on this. And so I was just like, you guys know that I sort of struggle with um, like hope in the midst of injustice or um, in the midst of other Christians misusing the Bible um, for power, things like that. Like that, that brings me great distress, right? Um, and so in the past, I've sort of used these exa- examples to bring you guys in on like why this, is, this passage is meaningful to me. And so it's just like, man, I feel like I'm gonna reuse a lot of things. And then to be honest, 
I was getting a little self-conscious and, and worried like, is this sermon necessary? Like we've done this a lot, we've talked about this a lot. Um, is this, okay. Now outside of the problem of being like so self-focused on this sermon, right? That's a problem in and of itself. I think there are a few other problems in this way of thinking. I think we are a culture that idolizes comfort so deeply that we will avoid suffering in our own lives to the point that we will distance ourselves from those who are suffering, right? So it's not even just enough for us to distance ourselves from suffering. We also, as a result of our desire for comfort, distance ourselves from others who are suffering. Does that make sense, that distinction? And so some in our culture have the privilege, particularly through money and access, to build up barriers around them so they don't have to see particular types of suffering in our world, right? Some of us in this room might have that privilege, but others don't. And as a result of this, and as a, as a result of my reading the Bible, I'm convinced that it is unbiblical to pursue comfort to the detriment of community with those that are currently uncomfortable, right? Let me say that again. It is unbiblical to pursue comfort to the detriment of community, right? I also believe that in an urban setting like Chicago, suffering, pain, discomfort is impossible to avoid in a lot of ways, right? I think the city is often a place where things like injustice and inequality are amplified in significant ways. I think mainly due to the like sort of more rubbing shoulders, right? Um, that happens in a city. And I just think like if you are living in the city and you are not at, like even just seeing any of this stuff, like I don't know where you are, right? Um, so for these reasons, I believe the church and our church in particular is meant to be a refuge for the weary a healing for the hurting, comfort for those who are mourning, community for those who are alone, right? So yes, I'm going to continue to talk about the ways we can engage with hurting and suffering a lot when I'm up here. I just wanted to let you know that. Because I don't believe in a fortress-building Christianity that shuts out those who are hurting. I believe in a God who was hurt to the point of death, that he might welcome us. A God who wept when the effects of sin took the life of his friend, right? a God who saw Hagar and her hurting. And because I believe we follow that God, we will attempt by the power of the Spirit to include the same type of people that he has included. So I know I'm preaching to the choir this morning. I know, I know you guys, right? Um, but I also know that it can be tiring to always engage in stuff that maybe feels negative, right? Um, so hopefully this morning, I can highlight the God of comfort from our text. Um, so let me, let me, before I do that, let me pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you are a God who sees, who hears the cries of his people, and he did not idly stand by, uh, but sent his son uh, that we might experience relationship and communion with you, God. Um, I thank you that you are the God of comfort. I pray this morning, uh, despite sickness, despite sort of some exhaustion here, Lord, that, uh, that you can speak this morning. So, Lord, let whatever is remembered be from you and not from me, Lord. Let us be about your glory, not mine, Lord, and help me to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Okay, so in starting, I do want I, another warning. Uh, the text this morning is a little bit technical, and we're gonna, we might get a little grammar focused. So if that's not your thing, don't worry. We are like 10 minutes from relevance. You're going to be good. Um, but we are going to get a little bit into the nitty-gritty of the language. Not as much as I maybe expected, but um, 
just because I don't want to, you know, again, keep you here till five. Uh, but we are going to look at that a little bit. Um, anyways, uh, okay, so verse one, let's jump into the text. It says this, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have, okay, stop, right? You can, you can already ex- see this, but you're probably sitting here thinking like, what is Paul saying? Like, what is he doing, right? He has this thought. He goes, for this reason, I, Paul, surely you have heard. You're like, am I crazy? Like, is that two different thoughts? You are not. That is two different thoughts, right? You are not tripping. See, Paul was starting a thought, and then he realized in starting that thought, something he said might hit different than what he wanted, right? How do we know, though, that Paul is, in fact, starting a different thought? It's because he gets right back to this original thought later in uh, the chapter. So if you look at verse 14, I think I have it on the next slide. Yeah, here we go. So he just said, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord. And then verse 14, he says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. So this sort of like starting in verse one and then this restarting in verse 14 points to, there's just a little bit of an aside here, right? A little bit of a, wait, I said something. Hold on, let me, let me address this first and then I'm gonna get back to what I was saying. Does that make sense? So verses two through 13 from here on out are sort of addressing um, what, this aside. Like what triggered in Paul's mind this desire to say an aside? Let's go ahead and go back to the passage. It says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And so then he goes back into this other thought. What, what sort of triggered this? From our text, we can see that Paul is calling himself a prisoner was why he briefly breaks from what he was saying, right? So he says, for this reason, uh, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, right? So he's even pointing out like the reason he is a prisoner and Paul is not, this isn't like flowery language to talk about how he's like under Christ. Paul is in prison, (laughs) right? He is saying like, I, Paul, a prisoner, of Jesus, but also a prisoner of the state on the say, or what does he say? For the sake of you Gentiles. So he even highlights like he is a prisoner and, and the Gentiles he is writing to, the Ephesians, right? Um, if you don't know Gentiles, really just meant like non-Jewish person at this time, right? So there, in the Jewish world, there were Jewish people and there were Gentiles were sort of how they thought of it. Um, so for the sake of the Ephesians, Paul is in prison right? Now, he realizes, like, this is going to discourage them, right? Like, Paul is saying, like, think about it. Your idol, your hero, the person who brought you into the faith is like, for you, I am in prison. Like, that's probably a little discouraging, no? It's like, what did I do, you know? Like, what, what is, what, this isn't my fault. Um, yeah, so this is going to be a little discouraging, and this idea, this, this, track of like, this is why he breaks. This is actually confirmed at the end of our passage. So verse 13, if you want to go, says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, right? And so verse one, he's saying, I'm in prison for you. He breaks. And then verse 13, he, he relays like why he said all of this. I ask therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory, right? So you tracking with me? Like, oh, there's a step there. This whole, don't worry about that. This whole aside is to, to address this discouragement. This whole aside is to say, yes, I'm in prison for you, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be discouraged, right? 
So what I want to do then is sort of look at this passage and say like, what is it that Paul highlights in order to encourage the Ephesians? Now, I, I, want, I do want to warn you, we're not going to explore every single nook and cranny of this passage. Like, I, I was doing some research, and there are like hours and hours of breaking down verse by verse. There's a lot of information in here, right? We could like spend time even just talking about in verse 7 where he says, like, I became a servant of this gospel by the, or sorry, 8, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, um, you can talk just about like Paul's sort of view of himself in relation to the gospel, things like that is a really good uh, talking point. But we're not going to get into all that. What I just want to focus on is like what in this passage, what are the main things? Paul is saying he wrote this to encourage the Ephesians. So what are those things that he gives in order to encourage them? Um, so this is how I'm going to do it. Sorry, I'm a little bit all over the place, but you guys are with me? Okay, what I want to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of explain what is it that the passage means, and then we're going to hit on three things that he hits on in order to encourage them, right? So there's a main idea here in this verses uh, 2 through 12, and then we're going to look at, like, what is it that's encouraging about that? So immediately in verse 2, Paul refers to his own calling as an administration of God's grace given to him for them. Grace to you. What is this grace? Well, Paul then calls this grace, he calls it a mystery that has been made known to him through revelation. In other words, it, wasn't, it was something that could not be known on his own, but by God's grace, he now knows it. He then also says that this mystery was not made known to those in the past in the same way it has been made now. So mystery here is defined as something that was once unknown or misunderstood and is now known or understood, okay? So it's not mystery in terms of like a mystery movie where we won't know until the end. What he's saying is we actually do now know what this mystery is, right? What is this mystery? Well, don't worry. We don't have to work too hard because verse six, he highlights it directly. He says, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, so the Ephesians and all the other non-Jewish people are heirs together with Israel members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. In other words, it's a reminder of what he just said in chapter two and what Tiana preached on last week, right? That the Gentiles, of which the Ephesians again are included, were once separated from Christ, excluded from, the citizen, from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, they who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the mystery, right? That they have been now brought near. It used to be just a particular people were God's people, the Jewish people, the Israelites, right? But the, the mystery now is that they are included. So God now is the God of all tribes, tongues, and nations. So with that understanding of the text, right? He's saying like, this is the mystery that we need to understand. We're now going to go into the three uh, encouragements from the text, okay? First reason, the implications of inclusion. Like what, what is implied as a result of their inclusion in the gospel, right? We just read this, but look at what Paul says is true as a result of the mystery. There are three things. He says, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together in one body, and sh- sharers together in the promise. 
Let's take a moment to break down what each of these mean. What does Paul mean when he calls the Gentiles heirs together with Israel? Well, being an heir means you inherit something, right? You have some piece of like a future estate or kingdom or something like that, right? Now, when you are an heir to something, what is the usual relationship to the person you are inheriting from? Yeah, I'm sure you said it. Family, right? Or son, daughter, like some sort of familial relationship, right? And in this case, our, our inheritance, I say our because we are included in sort of that, that Gentile branch. Some of us actually potentially do have some Jewish heritage, um, but for those of us who don't, we are included in the Gentile sort of branch, right? So as a result, our inheritance is from God himself as his children, right? Now, heir is only used a few times in the New Testament, uh, but one of them is in Romans 8. And look what it says here. It says, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So what I just said, confirming that. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering, in order that we also may share in his glory. See, Paul is saying that we, as heirs, share in the glory of Christ. That is wild, right? But what does it mean? It means that we are honored by God the Father, just like Jesus will be honored, right? Or is honored. Yes, the present affliction, pain, suffering is hard, but we look to, forward to a day where we are told, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Okay, next one. What does it mean to be members together of one body? It means that our inclusion into the family of God, we have family throughout this world, right? We are not left on our own. Tiana talked last week about this, right? That what the gospel does for those who were once divided by the wall of hostility is it tears it down, right? And then we are sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So the question arises, what is the promise here? Well, This promise is in direct reference to the covenant that God establishes with Abraham in Genesis. Uh, The promise is to fill the earth with Abram's descendants. Now this particular could be a whole nother sermon that I don't wanna get into it, but this is what's important, right? We are included in the promise. By being included in the promise, we are welcomed into a covenant relationship with God. So God has made promises to Abraham and he promised him certain things as a result of that relationship, right? And so as a result of being included in that promise, we are included in the covenant. Does that make sense? Um, he has promised that he will be close. This, and, and then it says this promise has been fil- fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So Jesus, in taking on our sin on the cross, fulfills the covenant that we were unable to fill, our half of the covenant, right? and he welcomes back into that relationship with God. Look again at Romans 8 to see what this says about God and his care for us. Verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he also along with him graciously give us all things, right? So God, what's it saying is God gave us his son. Why wouldn't he care for it, continue to care for us, right? These are the implications of our inclusion in God's plan of redemption, that we are heirs, members of the body, and sharers of the promise. The implication of our inclusion is inclusion, right? Like, think about that. We have been included in the family of God by God himself. 
That is the implication, is that we are people who are included. I think a major lie I often believe is that God does not care uh, in the face of injustice or things like that, right? If he did, why would he allow this? But what better anecdote for a hurting soul than knowing that God, in his hugeness, cares for us in our smallness, right? He did not spare his own son for us. He sees us. Okay, that was reason number one. Uh, Reason number two, this has been God's plan from the beginning. Uh, Our second reason Paul's writing here is meant to encourage the Gentiles is a little less obvious, but it ties directly to another lie we often believe in the face of hardship, right? The first lie is that God does not care. I think the second lie we often tell ourselves is that God is not in control, or he couldn't be if this is all happening, right? So he can't address this. He's not powerful enough. I think one way this lie plays out in our theology is this. God made people to be in relationship with him. They went against him. He did not expect this. And it took him a long, long time to come up with the idea of Israel and his people. And then his people went against him again. So it took him a long, long time to come up with the idea of Jesus, right? But that's a lie. It's, it's sort of saying like God just made it up as he went. He, he felt it out. This is dangerous though because the implication is that God is surprised by things and as a result, not in control, right? Now look at our passage. It's not super obvious that this addresses that, but I want you to look at verse five with me. Uh, So the plan of including the Gentiles was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So there's a bit of an implication here that it has always been the plan, but not fully revealed, is what they're saying, right? So I wanna ask, like, can we prove that from the Old Testament? Can we prove that it has always been God's plan to include the Gentiles? Let's look at just a couple of verses. There's a ton, but I just wanna look at a couple. Uh, Genesis 12, one through three. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make, he's talking to Abram, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, right? All peoples on earth is not just a throwaway phrase. God doesn't have many of those when he speaks, right? When he says this, he means every tribe, tongue, and nation will be blessed by Abraham. And what is that blessing from Abraham? The inclusion in the plan of redemption is that blessing, right? Next one, Isaiah 49, 6. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation might reach the ends of the earth. Now look, it is so explicit that I sometimes in my pride am like, how did they not see it coming that the mystery was that the Gentiles were included, right? Because he literally says, I will make you a light for the Gentiles. Like, come on, guys. Um, but it wasn't super obvious to the people. See, what's happening here in Isaiah is Isaiah is writing about God speaking directly to Jesus and telling Jesus sort of his ministry, his plan, his purpose for Jesus um, 600 years before Jesus came. And so his plan was to be not just a light for the Jewish people, but a light for the Gentiles as well, right? And then one more, Isaiah 56, seven. Those I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, right? 
I think you guys are getting the point. God isn't always intended to include the nations, the Gentiles, in his plan of redemption. He didn't just wake up one day and was like, hmm, this is a good idea, right? So how does this speak to like our, how we experience hardships, sufferings, things like that? God is in control, and he is not flippant, right? He is steady. He is committed to bringing his people back into relationship with him, right? So God cares, and God is in control. And finally, reason number three, we can be encouraged by this passage, is that we have boldness and access to God through our faith, right? Look at verse 12 with me. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. In other words, everything he laid out uh, is getting to verse 13, right? I ask you therefore not to be discouraged, but a lot of it also just builds straight to 12. As a result of all of these things that are true of us and as God in him and through him in faith, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. That is a wild statement. What does this access to God look like? It means coming to God in our times of trouble and being honest with him. God, I am struggling. God, why is this happening? God, can you hear me, right? We, we have the ability and the confidence to be real with God. It also means we come to him freely in communion. What was true before Jesus? I want you guys to think about like Moses in the temple, right? Moses is with the Jewish people. He would climb up a huge mountain. He would spend time face to face with God as one does with a friend is what the passage says, right? And then he would come down, his face is shining like secondhand glory from God. And then what did Moses have to do with the people? Does anyone know? Yeah, he had to put, thank you. He had to put a veil on, right? Because the people could not only not handle God's glory, they couldn't handle secondhand glory, right? Like the, the veil was like, no, this is too much for us. So we have to put on a veil. What is true of us now? We don't need a veil, right? Heck, we don't even need a Moses, right? Because Jesus is our mediator, we have direct access to God via our faith. We can spend time with him through his word, during worship, in prayer. We can spend time with him on a walk, in a conversation with a friend, while we're working. See, on this side of the resurrection, the temple, aka the presence of God himself, has moved from a brick and mortar building to you, his people. Our access is not limited by Sunday mornings, right? Or by our presence in this building. We don't have to wait to receive grace. Grace is with us as we are experiencing that hardship. He is with us as we are struggling. In him and through him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence, right? We can continue to be people who lean into discomfort because we know that God cares, we know that God is powerful, and we know that God is accessible to us, right? Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.